0: Vaccines are shipping, stimulus plans are stalling, markets are wobbling, and central banks are plotting. This is no time for duress. You are on the Investopedia Express. Welcome to Episode 15, Time Flies When You're On This Train, and we have a busy week ahead, so let's get set up. The first shipments of BN2162B2, that's the scientific name of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, they were trucked out of the drug company's Kalamazoo, Michigan production plant Sunday morning and they are rolling down the highway. It's one of the largest mass mobilizations since the country's factories were repurposed to help fight World War II. Chemists, factory workers, truckers, pharmacists, health regulators and healthcare workers are all working together for this mass distribution effort. It requires ultra-cold freezers, dry ice, syringes, masks and other protective equipment. It's a giant experiment and the stakes couldn't be higher. Then, on December 17th, the FDA's Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee will review the safety and efficacy data for Moderna's mRNA-1273 COVID-19 vaccine. The shots are coming. On Friday, Tesla, Texas's Elon Musk electric automaker, will join the S&P 500 index. That means that all index funds and ETFs that track the S&P 500 need to own it shares of tesla have been cruising higher for the past month and all year up 630 percent with a market value of 578 billion dollars as of this morning it will be the eighth biggest component of the benchmark index when it officially joins it this friday also this week central banks including the bank of england the bank of japan and the u.s federal reserve will all meet on interest rates and monetary policy rates aren't going anywhere But how much longer will these banks keep buying government and corporate bonds to lay the safety net under capital markets? We'll talk about that more later in the show. And we're on government shutdown watch again. The U.S. Senate passed a continuing resolution last Friday to keep the government funded for a single week while Congress continues to hash out a funding and stimulus bill. Let's get this straight. The U.S. is facing another government shutdown, the third in the last four years, and at the same time, that pandemic unemployment assistance programs are set to expire at the end of this month. U.S. lawmakers are supposed to go home on Friday for Christmas vacation, and they're still far apart on another round of stimulus measures for millions of Americans who are nearing or at the end of their financial ropes. What else could go wrong? Well, it already did as the U.S. government disclosed yesterday that the Treasury and Commerce Departments were reportedly the targets of cyber attacks by a foreign government. This is 2020. Stock markets hitting all-time highs in the teeth of the virus's resurgence is a perplexing dynamic for investors in 2020. Higher highs make for high anxiety, and it's a tricky paradox for investors, not just today in 2020, but always. How come stock market highs make us so fearful? Well, consider this stat. Since 1928, the S&P 500 has hit new all-time highs in roughly 5% of trading sessions. If we invert this number, that means 95% of the time, investors are in a state of drawdown and stocks are down from a previous high watermark. I recently spoke with Ben Carlson of Ritholtz Wealth Management, who's also the blogger behind A Wealth of Common Sense, the co-host of the Animal Spirits podcast, which I highly recommend, and the author of a new and terrific book, Everything You Need to Know, About saving for retirement. Ben has a great way of explaining this.
1: If you were to invest any random day in the stock market, you'd have your typical long-term average returns. But if you were to invest just when the stock market is at all-time highs, you would actually have a little bit higher than average returns, which is hard to believe because a lot of people think, okay, we've reached a new high. That means we're going to be at a plateau. And the next day the stock market is falling. But if, you know, one out of every 20 days the stock market is hitting an all-time high historically that's not a bad track record. Alternatively, you know, I think the whole process of investing is really a form of regret minimization. And if you're in a state of a drawdown, 95% of the time, meaning stocks were higher the day before or or the last week or the last month or whatever, you constantly think to yourself in the back of your mind, I should have sold then. Why didn't I get out? And if you're playing that game where you're constantly looking in the rearview mirror and thinking about what you wish you would have done because stocks are down three or four or five or 10 or even 20 or 30%, that's a tough way to invest because there's always trade-offs in terms of looking at the high mark and thinking that you should be doing better than you are. So it's really about just having this sort of long-term mindset and not really paying attention to that short-term stuff that's going on.
0: That's so hard to do in 2020, yet the government and the Federal Reserve Bank here in the U.S. has thrown trillions of dollars into the economy and into capital markets to avert a depression. Ben, has a precedent been set here where equity markets just keep melting higher because the government has put a huge safety net under capital markets?
1: This is a great question, by the way. It's something I've been thinking a lot about because I think once the genie is out of the bottle, it's gonna be tough to stick it back in there because if if politicians know that when there's a recession and a downturn, if there's political will and they have this spending and interest rates are low enough where it, it doesn't really impact us that much, I don't see how you can put that genie back in the bottle. Now, alternatively, one side of your brain thinks this has got to be bullish, right? Because there's a floor in the stock market. The other side of it is, if you take that left tail risk off of, we're not going to have a great depression scenario again, where your stocks fall 80, 90%, does that lift overall valuations? Because investors know that the Fed and the government has their back. So does that make long-term returns lower in the future? Because you've taken a little of that risk off the table. So that's the trade-off here is that one of the reasons that the stock market has given long-term returns higher than bonds and cash over time is because it, it's this no pain, no gain type of thing. And if you take away a little bit of the pain, that's off the table. One of the unintended consequences could be investors take more risk than they normally would have otherwise. The other thing is that maybe valuations drift higher and that puts a cap on returns in terms of expected going forward. I think that's a that's a possibility too. but. Yeah, th- this is a good way to think about it. A lot of it has to do with political will. And maybe politicians will say, no, we're not going to do this anymore. So a lot of it depends on, on them. But I, I think it's going to be harder for citizens to look at it and say, why are you allowing us to be in pain during a recession when you have the ability to stop it? Because I think we did stop a depression in its tracks when the economy was essentially shut down for a month or two there.
0: COVID-19 pandemic produced a lot of extremes in the global economy and in capital markets. Here in the U.S., we experienced one of the steepest and fastest recessions in history, as well as one of the fastest bear markets and recoveries in history. Stock markets hitting all-time highs in the midst of this fatal outbreak and economic destruction have our heads spinning, but thankfully, we have some history of health pandemics and economic recoveries to look at for perspective. To do that, we're so happy to have Jamie Catherwood of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management Jamie puts out a must-read blog every week called Investor Amnesia and a terrific newsletter every weekend for market and economic historians, which I highly recommend. Welcome to The Express, Jamie.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You've been studying past pandemics like the yellow fever epidemic of 1798 and the cholera epidemic of 1832, different viruses, different times, different markets, obviously. But what have you learned from these as you look back? Let's go back to, to the yellow fever epidemic.
2: Yeah, so again, there's not many people looking at these 18th century uh, pandemics and epidemics so we are a little bit limited in what we can go off of but there are some interesting similarities just in terms of governments kind of requiring people to quarantine who are infected and you can see definitely in some of the sort of stock exchanges because it's important to remember in these 18th century epidemics like yellow fever that broke out in New York City in 1798 that at this time, there were a lot of regional stock exchanges. And because the United States was obviously just not as developed in terms of transportation at that point in time, you had very localized kind of epidemics. And so what's interesting to see is that while a city like New York that was suffering from an outbreak of something like yellow fever, that New York stock exchange might be impacted. And you'll see the prices of securities listed on the New York exchange dip In response to that epidemic in other regional stock exchanges like maybe in boston or philadelphia you will see that the effects even on the same stocks and bonds that were floated in new york had really no effect on those exchanges because they weren't experiencing that same yellow fever outbreak so it's interesting to think about because it's just so different from today where everything's so connected but It's just interesting where you'd see, I think, like the Bank of New York was down in New York, but then the Bank of New York stocks listed on the Philadelphia exchange were unaffected.
0: That's fascinating. So local, right?
2: Yeah, I know. In 1793, I think the Philadelphia stock exchange was forced to shut down while the New York stock exchange, the shares listed there had no Recognizable impact from the yellow fever that was just wrecking Philadelphia at the time.
0: And you couldn't call your broker in another city at that time. You were yeah. just either trading. <laughs> down at the exchange in your local town, uh, or you were just forgetting about it. And there was all these other regional exchanges throughout the country as well. Let's talk about the cholera epidemic of 1832. The the city already was 250,000 people, far smaller than it was today. But in 1798 for the yellow fever epidemic, there was only about 35,000 people in New York City. Now the city's much bigger. It's 1832 and cholera is breaking out everywhere. Tell us about what happened.
2: Yeah. So I think that this was also the episode of cholera in New York where They sort of used today's population as a comparison and said that on a percentage basis, it would be the equivalent of like a 100,000 people dying just in New York City alone today, based on the percentage of the population that died in 1832 from cholera, which is just astounding to think about. And in the 19th century, cholera is like I don't know, it almost seems like the equivalent of just the seasonal flu. It seems like every year there was a cholera outbreak somewhere in the United States or some major epidemic. It's kind of hard to keep track of all the cholera epidemics because there was another huge one in New York in the 1890s. But in this period, it kind of coincides with the railway boom or sort of the early railway mania in 1830s. And the piece from the Museum of American Finance points out that the railroad shares at the time were some of the ones most affected 40 and slip, there impacted. And that makes sense, right? Because just like airline stocks today, those transportation stocks would have been getting less traffic as more people are getting sick. But they also, like we're seeing a little bit this year, the dip and then rebound in transportation shares. The stocks like the Mohawk and the Patterson and Hudson Railroads dropped $15 to $20 per share, but then they've kind of recovered and reached new highs, not that much later. So again, some similarities with today, but a very different type of transportation stock.
0: That was before they were called the Dow transports, actually, but it was a transportation and the beginning of the industrial revolution economy and the country was already accumulating some debt. And there was a big battle with President Andrew Jackson in Congress about the debt and whether to pay that off and what to do with it. So not too dissimilar, but a very different time. Let's get into scarlet fever, 1858, vicious disease, scarlet fever. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, so this again is a perfect example of a very localized epidemic, but one that was brutal, as you say. So this occurred in Massachusetts, and it killed two thousand eighty nine people, and they were almost all under the age of sixteen. And this all happened in a year. So, considering what the population at the time was uh, in Massachusetts it was one point two million, and about three hundred fifty thousand of those were people under the age of sixteen. That's a uh, pretty deathly disease. What I found funny is in this article talking about that scarlet fever epidemic was, even though I was talking about almost all the victims being under the age of 16, it was talking about how some of them were employed. <laughs> and it's just crazy to think back to child labor laws and stuff that some of these under 16-year-olds were already working in factories. But yeah, this was a, another example of a very regional epidemic where the Boston stock market was impacted, but other regional exchanges were not. And Actually, a large part of the stock market was not impacted at all. You had a lot of manufacturing stocks that posted huge gains for the year. And I think mainly that was because, again, these children and people that were impacted were staying at home and kind of being forced to quarantine.
0: Right. And, and it was, as, as they say, a more emotional impact than economic. But still, when you see young people like that, especially those that are being forced to work dying, what, what a shock to the system. Okay, now we move into the 20th century. Spanish flu is the one I think we most closely associate with, and the Asian flu, with the coronavirus pandemic. This was a very deadly disease in 1918. Tell us about Spanish flu. Tell us about the impact it had.
2: Yeah. So I think most people know by now that the Spanish flu name is a bit of a misnomer. I still refer to it that way because it's just what people recognize it as. But the reason it's called Spanish flu is kind of interesting. During World War I, many of the kind of Western allies had an agreement with their press corps in each of their respective countries to kind of not report negative news. And because it's just viewed as kind of hurting the war effort. So during World War One, Spain was one of the only countries that did not have that in place. And so they were really the only one reporting on this outbreak of influenza in 1918. And so because they were the only ones talking about it, then it just kind of got associated with Spain. And so that's why we call it the Spanish flu, even though it was really kind of originating in military camps in the US. I think it was Kansas specifically. It's a kind of interesting point there. But yeah, it was definitely really, really brutal. Around the world, the flu killed about 40 million people or 2% of the world's population. And the death rate for those infected in the US was about 6%. And then of that 40 million... It was around 600,000 people in the U.S. that died of Spanish influenza, which is about a half percent of the U.S. population, which is crazy to think about. But today, you can just imagine if we were experiencing COVID in a deadlier version, but also just coming on the tail end of a world war. It's hard to think about because today what's going on already seems so awful, but then you pile in a world war and you can't imagine how the stock market would react but there is an interesting paper put out, there's been a flurry of papers looking back at Spanish flu now as everyone looks for a historical context. But these two economists tried to separate the impact of World War One and Spanish flu on the stock market. And they found that in the United States, the flu by itself reduced real stock returns by seven percentage points and returns on short-term government debt by three and a half percentage points while raising inflation by five percentage points. So it clearly had a dramatic impact on the economy. And then in 1920, 1921, the US went into a recession. Right.
0: And and they had no hopes of these speedy vaccines that we've been able to produce in just the last year, the size and the scope of the government intervention, not enough, and didn't even know if they had the tools to fight this kind of a thing off. When you look at what's happened here in 2020, and the or $4 trillion that the government in the US has just thrown at this, plus what's happening in Europe and Asia. That's a staggering amount of government support. But that didn't exist back then. So when these things hit, these were medical crises that spilled very deeply into the economy. And then finally, with the 1957 Asian flu pandemic, that was a pretty serious one as well. It killed between one and 2 million people.
2: I was shocked to find when I was rereading in preparation for our talk today that the death count was so high, I feel like it's something that maybe doesn't get as much recognition as it should, because we all focus on the Spanish flu. But this is a more recent and more deadly outbreak or not more deadly, but equally deadly in the U.S. The deaths range from 70,000 to 116,000. And the Dow dropped from a peak on July 12th, dropped 19.4% to a low on October 22nd. So that was a pretty precipitous drop. But what's interesting, as this article points out, is that the flu outbreak was not cited by the media as a factor in the market downturn. So I found that pretty surprising. When you have a kind of death toll rising that quickly and the stock market tanking at the same time, you would think that the correlation would be there. But it's interesting to see that they said that it was not a factor at the time. People were not making that link.
0: That's fascinating. And and there were more people getting invested in the stock market around that time too. It's fascinating that they chose to exclude that, but sometimes that's selective journalism. You recently introduced a new online course through Investor Amnesia with some terrific guest lectures. Tell us about that and tell us how people can get involved.
2: Yes. If you don't want to do the uh, deep archival digging yourself, this course is a good way for you to kind of get the benefits of other people's research and some insights from some kind of world-renowned investors and academics. So I launched this course... It's the Investor Amnesia course on Bubbles, Manias, and Fraud, and it involves seven outside lecturers giving a lecture on a given topic related to bubbles, manias, or fraud. I was very grateful to have some big names like Jim Chanos, William Getzman from Yale, Scott Nations, who's a best-selling author on financial history and CNBC contributor, and many others. So in the case of Jim Chanos, he walks through the history of US fraud, what he calls the greatest hits. And he walks through his greatest shorts from 1983 to 2008. And for William Getzman, he's been writing about South Sea bubble for ages. He's kind of like the godfather of financial history. And he gives an awesome talk on that. And then you have some more kind of under the radar bubbles, like uh, Professor John Turner from Queens University of Belfast gives a fantastic lecture on a brewery bubble in the 1890s, where Guinness and all these other brewers were going public alongside another bicycle mania at the same time, where like 670 bicycle companies went public in a two-year time span. So there's a lot to learn from. And you see these patterns in history and starting to repeat. And this lecture is a great way to see kind of how these patterns and trends repeat themselves and what to look out for as an investor today. But if you go to investoramnesia.com, you'll find more information. Or if you go to my Twitter, at Investor Amnesia, you'll learn more. And if you enter History Rhymes at checkout, you'll get 10% off.
0: There you go, folks. And following Jamie is one of the more fun things I do during the course of my day and reading your, your Sunday newsletter. It's so rich, so many great historical anecdotes, great pictures, and you're able to find those old articles. It looks like you've been sleuthing in the library. We appreciate your time, Jamie Catherwood of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management and the author of the Investor Amnesia blog. Thanks for joining us on The Express.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's terminology time, time for the educated investor to smarten up with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes at the suggestion of Salvador Rosados from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Sal gets a pair of butter soft and always sharp Investopedia socks for his suggestion. And you can too, if you DM us on Instagram or Twitter with the winning suggestion for next week's show. Sal suggested quantitative easing this week, and it's a spot-on suggestion given the meeting of central banks on interest rates and their bond-buying programs this week in England, Japan, and the U.S. According to Investopedia, quantitative easing, or QE as it is known, is a form of unconventional monetary policy in which a central bank purchases longer-term securities from the open market in order to increase the money supply and encourage lending and investment. Buying these securities adds new money to the economy and also serves to lower interest rates by bidding up fixed income securities. It also expands the central bank's balance sheets, and central bank's balance sheets are huge this year. Quantitative easing increases the money supply by purchasing assets with newly created bank reserves in order to provide banks with more liquidity. Central banks have been leaning hard into quantitative easing all year, buying trillions of dollars in government bonds and corporate bonds too. That safety net we were talking about earlier in the show, it's a quilt of quantitative easing. The question for this week is whether central bankers will keep knitting and for how long. You keep stitching it together this week, and we'll be right there with you. We'll let former Fed Chair Alan Greenspan take us out this week. Here are his comments back in 2007 on the lack of inflation and the risks it will bring to the U.S. economy. The question is, of course, where do we go from here? Can we continue to achieve significant gains in real activity while avoiding inflationary excesses. Because monetary policy works with a lag, it is not the conditions prevailing today that are critical, but rather those likely to prevail 6 to 12 months or even longer from now. Where do we go from here? Well, wherever you go, go safely and get after it. Thanks for riding on The Express with me. I'm Caleb Silver, and we'll talk to you again next week.